You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, um, as, as Holly read, Psalm 126 has two kind of short sections. They're two clear sections. It's a very simple psalm. Um, there, there's a section, verses 1 through 3, of remembrance, um, and then a section of petition in verses 4 through 6. And you'll notice uh, throughout this psalm, it's really about not only what God has done or what God might do. It's really about the emotions that the people felt as they were traveling and remembering what God had done in their midst and hoping for God to move again. So it's about the way they feel in remembrance and about the way they feel in petition. They remember the emotions that mark a people saved by God. They're, they're talking generally here, right? Like they're not recalling a specific event of God's salvation, but they're generally remembering the salvation of the people of God, like events uh, uh, where God saved Noah during the flood that, that came over all the earth, or um, w- when God delivered the people from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. They're remembering that. They're remembering when they asked God for a king, and eventually God gave them David, a good, strong, and righteous king. And now, like we said in the entryal, we, we are at the time of exile, so this is very familiar to us since we just kind of walked through Nehemiah, which is another season of exile. Um, these Israelites would be scattered and dispersed in a kingdom that is not their own. They are living under a different king, um, but they would still travel to Jerusalem for these Jewish festivals and feasts, like the, the Feast of Booths, which we've talked about. Um, and as they marched, they would sing, and, and songs just like 126, Psalm 126 would, would dwell on the way that God had saved them in the past and what they felt like when he saved them. Um, let's read part one together and see what it feels like for them to be delivered by God. It says this, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then... Our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So so they sing in this beautiful, just small, to the point reminder. Um, They remember that when the Lord restores his people, they are like those who dream, right? Right? They, they can hardly believe it. They're floating in the dream of remembering, I can't believe that the Lord had saved us. And then it says, out of this posture, when God saves his people, there's laughter. There's, there's shouts of joy. Their mouths are filled with laughter, we are told. And, and we talked about how um, in Nehemiah that the nation of Israel, after being established and saved, was called to be a blessing For the nations, they were called to steward and be generous with God's goodness so that the nations surrounding them would experience the goodness of God, right? Like, think about um, maybe in Joshua chapter 4, the people of God are recalling their salvation. It says this in verse 23, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you to pass over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up until we passed over so that all the people of the earth may know the hand of God, that it is mighty, and that they may fear the Lord your God forever. So in Psalm 126, when God blesses his people, they're remembering that it affects the nations, that the nations look on the nation of Israel and say, the Lord has done great things for them. 
It's an apologetic. It's a defense of the goodness of our God when the people look upon the nation of Israel and see that God has done good for them. And then this section ends with the people of Israel agreeing. They say the Lord has done good things for us, and we are glad as a result. We are filled with laughter. So, the people saved by God are marked by these things, joy, laughter, acknowledgement from the surrounding nations, right? The Lord has done something good for them, gladness, dreamlike state, right? Like they're remembering the way it felt. I really want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the exiles here. They had tasted the goodness of God, or at least their fathers and mothers had told them about how their fathers and mothers had told them about how their fathers and mothers had experienced God's salvation and and there was laughter and celebration and a dreamlike state, and the nations were looking upon Israel and not thinking what a disparate ruled over nation, but a marvelous nation that God is blessing. And so they're thinking of that. And as they sing, they're reminding themselves, they're closing their eyes, and they're envisioning what it might have felt like for their long-ago distant relatives to be saved by God and what, what a resulting reaction would be, how they would emote, how they would be emotional. And, and they think, oh, what would it be like to be saved by God again? What would it be like to experience that greatness? There's so much uh, that they can almost taste it, right? They talk about how their mouth was filled with laughter, their tongue tasting shouts of joy. The muscles in their mouths longing to laugh again because of the great things that God has done. But that's, they're, remember, they're trying to remember and trying to taste the emotions that their forefathers had because that's just not their current reality. They're exiles. They're, they're pilgriming to the city of God. They're not experiencing the blessing within the city of God. The reality is that they, they don't have a nation they have been punished because of their sin. They marched to Jerusalem wanting for God to do something new. They are wanting a new king, a new leader, a new word from God, a new prophecy, a new Messiah, a savior. And then uh, in verse 4, we have the turn of the psalm. It goes from remembrance to petition. Um, they think back to when they were saved and things were good, and then they turn their singing from remembrance to this petition part, and they remember themselves, and they look at themselves as a desert in need of water. Um, have you ever, uh, we just had a really dry summer, so if you've neglected a house plant or a yard plant like me, you know that uh, they get, they wilt and they die. <laughs> if you don't water them, they will die. Well, in verse 4, they sing this, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Well, the Negev is this desert in southern Judah. It's in, it's in Israel's old borders. It's part of Israel's history. They had wandered and sent uh, people into the Negev before. So Negev is very much this desert of, of knowledge in their mind. Like they, they were connected to the Negev in a way in their history. And it's a desert, right? So the plants that might be there are dead. But in season, after major rains, the Negev would uh, experience flourishing when, when streams like fingers would spread out through this desert, arid place every once in a while. And when those streams did that, life would pop up. Life would flourish in the desert. And so 
right? Like it's, it's just like us. If, if you go water the plants that are wilted, you can even sometimes stand there and watch them stand up again. After a little while, they will pop back up. So this is, it's an illustration, right? Like the people of God are saying, we are like the desert now. We are exiled. We are longing for life. We are longing like dead and desolate plants for God to send water of life into our desert again. It should make us think of a few things. It should make us think of Psalm 1, uh, which it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers, right? Like the people are thinking of this. They're thinking, well, we're not like the tree by the stream. We're like the deserts of the Negev. They're, they're thirsty for restoration and revival for them to rise up like plants that have yearned for water for decades in the desert. Uh, Wendell Berry is a, is a poet, and he puts it like this. He says, my sweetness is to wake in the night after days of dry heat hearing the rain. Um, for a moment, I want us to draw our eyes to chapter 7 of John's gospel. You can, you can turn there if you want, um, but, but I want to give you some context um, because the words that Jesus speaks in John chapter 7 are beautiful in and of themselves, but unless you know what's actually going on on this day of a festival in Jerusalem, you're, you're going to miss something that's happening. We'll lose something about the scene that's unfolding. Um, in John chapter 7, there's, there's a feast going on. It's called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's very much one of these festivals that the people of Jerusalem would walk to Jerusalem, or the people of Israel, rather, would walk to Jerusalem. They'd pilgrim to Jerusalem and sing psalms just like Psalm 126, going to a feast just like this that Jesus is at right now in John chapter 7. The Feast of Booths is this it's a celebration at the end of fall for the grape and olive harvest for the people of Israel. It's a festival of gratitude for the Lord's provision. And it's called the Feast of Booths because literally the people would remember their time in the wilderness, their time in the desert, when they would make tents and temporary shelters because they had no city, they had no home. And so during the feast, they recreate these structures, and they would leave their homes in Jerusalem, and they would sleep in tents in the city streets to remember their time when God provided for them in the desert. And on the last day of the feast, a specific ceremony would occur. And so in John chapter 7, um, it mentions that Jesus is on, there's something that happens on the last day of the festival well, on the last day of the festival, the people would recall how God in the desert not only provided for their food, but also gave them water. You might remember this during the, uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 17. There's this scene where the people are literally dying of thirst, and God tells Moses to slap a rock with his staff, and from that rock, water will come out. Um, and so they do. And it does. Water, water flows out of this rock, and the people are able to drink from this rock that God has said, hit this with the staff, and water will come out. And so the ceremony that happens on the last day of the Festival of Booths is a remembrance of this event. The priest would, would go to the well outside the city gates, and they would take these big golden jars with them, and they would fill them up with water from the fountains, and they would go through what's called in Jerusalem the water gate, um, and they would bring the water to the temple altar. And at the temple altar, they would mix this water with wine. 
They would mix it with wine, and they would pour the water over the altar, and the water would flow into the streets. So the people were supposed to see this and remember that God had provided them. The water and the wine mixed would, to, would be to show how richly God had provided for them. Not just water, but the riches of the sweet, beautiful wine that flow into the streets. So this is the specific context where Jesus, in John chapter 7, stands up and it says he cries out into the crowds at the festival. And so let's read this together. And if you want to engage your imagination, I'd encourage you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes um, and imagine the scene, right? Like Jesus, it's on the last day of the festival. The water ceremony is starting. Jesus stands up in front of the temple. Water and wine are flowing through his feet staining his robes, everyone is there, and he cries out this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right? Like, you're free to open your eyes at this point. Um, This is a radical scene. Because the ceremony is indicating that God provides water for people who are thirsty. Jesus stands up with water all over his feet and robes and wine all over his feet and robes and says, I am water. Drink from me. We know this is radical because a few verses later, people say, well, this this is surely a great prophet. Others say, and they get it, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God. Others say, arrest and kill this man. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Excuse me. They, They see him stand. They see water and wine symbolizing Yahweh's provision flowing through him. And he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus is is quite literally killed for these words, among other words. He is hung on a cross. He says on that cross that he thirsts And after he dies, his side is pierced, and what comes out? John tells us water and blood, living water. The blood or the wine of Christ flows from his pierced side. The water of life flows from the hung corpse of the rock of ages, like we sang, God himself. So the rock in the desert, water comes out. Jesus standing, I am the living water, while water and wine flow under his feet. On the cross, another staff pierces another rock, and water and blood come out. The people cry, restore our fortunes like streams in the desert, O God. They, they're pilgriming to Israel, waiting for a Savior and waiting for water. As the psalm continues, um, it, it finishes with this idea of reaping and sowing. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. You've heard it said, uh, you reap what you sow. This is a biblical idea. Um, Galatians 6, 7 says as much. Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, one will reap. Um, Continuing, this is unpacked for us. Paul says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from his own flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So reaping and sowing, this is an agricultural phrase, right? Like it's it's just saying the type of seed that you put into the ground, which is called sowing, is the type of 
fruit or vegetable or whatever you will reap. Um, so today the phrase is used in the same way. I'm assuming you guys know this, but I'll unpack it just in case. Uh, you get what you've worked to get, right? Like if you're mean and angry and bitter and cynical to everybody around your life, you're probably not going to have many friends, which means you've reaped what you've sown. And from a biblical perspective, Paul in Galatians is very much talking not only about just that general idea, which is, which is pretty true as far as we live our lives, but he's talking about a spiritual and eternal idea. And he's, he's comparing it simply to faith in Christ through the Holy Spirit or faith in your flesh. He just says, look, if you, if you sow into yourself, if you trust in yourself to save yourself, you will get yourself. And the flesh is corrupt. So he says, death awaits you. If you sow into the spirit, life awaits. The harvest will be life. It's, it's simply a, it's an appeal to faith. Sow into the work, sow into belief, sow into faith in Christ, and you will reap the harvest of life. So when we get to the psalm, which happens hundreds of years before Paul writes this, um, there's no contradiction here. It's not talking about what you sow. It's talking about how you sow. Right? Let's read these verses again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Again, they're talking about their emotional, current emotional reality, right? Like their current sowing, they're, they're traveling to Israel in faith that God will save them. And yet they do so in suffering, in sorrow, in exile. But they tell themselves, we who sow in sorrow because of our faith that God will save us will reap life in joy. Right? This is, this is the same for us today. Often the people of God labor on in faith, trusting in the work of Christ as we struggle to do the work of the kingdom. We suffer. It was true for Israel. It's true for many of us even this morning, right? And, and we know the Bible is very clear, the New Testament even clear that we aren't promised earthly blessing. We're, we're in fact told to expect to suffer. What we are promised is that in suffering, God by his spirit will be close and he will use suffering to shape us into the image of his son, it's a process called sanctification. And so many of you know and have tasted, because I know your stories, um, what it looks like to, to continue to sow in faith even though you suffer. To sow in to continue to work out your faith in Christ even though you're tearful or anxious or restless. And regardless of of a lie that the world might tell us, or even the church sometimes tells us, um, we will suffer because sin and death are a part of our world. If you sow in sorrow or tears, you aren't sinful. I want us to know that. It's not sinful to be emotional. It, it simply means you're human. And if you truly sow the things of God, faith in Christ, then you will, we are told, it's a promise, it's not a hope, it's a promise that you will reap with shouts of joy, laughter, and gladness. The reality is we will reap with that emotional state because what we reap is life. 
We will reap Christ. We will reap life. And I think it's this, this truth that's the key to Christian contentment in a way. Contentment that doesn't negate emotion. We often think of contentment as like a lack of emotion. I don't think that's what Christian contentment is. It really can't be. It, it instead is that we have real sorrow, real suffering, and yet joy is attainable in the midst of that suffering. And, right, like joy is a command for the Christian. We don't get a pass, but, but we are sent the access to the joy, which is that the Holy Spirit comes and reminds us that the Lord has done and will do great things for us, that the Holy Spirit is applying the work and reminder of the goodness of the gospel that Jesus has lived and died and risen again to our lives. And so joy for those who suffer does not negate sadness. Instead, it's just much more complex. There's joy for those who suffer because we know that we will reap a harvest of life experience a harvest of eternity with Jesus and his people. Suffering does not define the harvest, even if it defines your time or season. After Jesus is crucified and after his side is pierced, he is um, metaphorically sown into the ground, right? He's planted in a tomb. There is suffering and tears and shouts of pain. There's not laughter he is thirsty, he is forsaken, he is alone, and on Saturday he is dead. And yet, the way that we reap is not the way that we sow. New life springs from a tomb of death. Jesus walks out of a tomb alive. Don't check for him, he's not there. Like water flowing out from a desert, the risen Lord appears to the broken, the distraught, and the doubting followers. Their sorrow turns to joy and acclamation like plants rising in a desert tasting water. He is not dead. He's alive. And therefore, all of those, Paul tells us, who find themselves in Christ, who drink living water in his name, sow in faith, not because of their own work, but because of the work of Christ and the Spirit sent to dwell within, they sow in faith. The Spirit is sent out like streams in the desert. When the Spirit touches you like it touched me, we, we rise up like dead plants experiencing water and new life. It's revival. You will reap what you sow, we are told. And regardless of how you sow in, in suffering, in sorrow, or, or through tears, um, you can access joy now because we know we will not reap and so, or we will not reap the same way we sowed. You will, in the end, grab hold of the harvest of eternal life because of the work of Jesus, the Messiah. So this morning, as we remember our journey towards a heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, the church with our brothers and sisters throughout the city and the world, we sing this psalm that the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad and the Lord will do great things for us again. We enter the city with shouts of joy and laughter on our lips, not because we push down emotion or overlook suffering, but because we have life through the God who did suffer. We come to the table feasting on the body and blood of Christ. We come saying, Lord, we thirst. And his response as he stands with water flowing and wine flowing 
Anyone who comes to me and thirsts, he says, let them drink. We sang from thy wounded side, which flowed rock of ages, cleft for me just a few moments ago. Hide in him, drink from him, feast on his body. The rock of ages, God himself invites you to take refuge from sin and death in him. Grasp life and proclaim that the Lord has done great things for us. Let's pray. Lord, we, like the people, our people from so long ago, we are traveling to this heavenly city and we long to see you. We long to be fed by you. We long to be offered drink by you, Lord. Even at the table, we come recovenanting to your goodness by feasting on your body and drinking of your blood, the, the bread and the wine, Lord. We remember that you are worthy of praise. You are king. You are lamb. You are savior. You are friend. You are living water. We are thirsty. Some of us are very parched this morning. Drinking only maybe tears or suffering or sorrow. And yet... You are very close to those who are brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that you would be close to us this morning, be close to us even now, as we come and remember that you are good and you have done it. You have provided of yourself and that though we may suffer as we pilgrim on this earth, that still is marked by sin and death. Lord, there's a time coming where the harvest will be life. Where the refrain ceases to be the Lord has done or will do great things for us, but it, it is eternally the Lord is doing great for us. Here he is in our midst. Here we are tasting the harvest with our Savior for eternity. I pray that you would comfort us this morning as we come to the table and remind us of your goodness. We love you, Lord. We trust you. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen.